We are very honored today to have a satsang in which those of us who are here in embodied form are accompanied by sacred beings who may be located in many parts of the world via this technological achievement of the human ego known as the internet. And it's a, a great joy to welcome those who are attending this uh, satsang. Wherever your physical bodies may be, knowing that where you really are is where your heart is, where your consciousness is focused. So may we all be together in the heart, in the truest sense of the one self that all of us are manifestations of. Geographically, we are in the Sat Yoga Ashram in the mountains of Costa Rica. But symbolically, we are in Arunachala. Arunachala, the great symbolic form of Shiva, who represents in that very word the stillness of absolute luminous presence and was the physical site in South India where the Charitra, the life story of Bhagavan Sri Ramana Maharishi was lived out and his immortal teachings that came directly from the Supreme Source remain an inspiration for which we here have great reverence and love and which we study and make diligent effort to realize in order to be free of the bondage of suffering that is created by the illusory ego so that the one self that we truly are is realized while these bodies are alive so that the energy field and the vibrational power of that supreme blissful self can be disseminated throughout a world that is in a time of intense suffering because of the loss of the realization of who and what we are and what is the meaning of this plane of the phenomenal world. And the intelligence of the real self once realized provides the only path for restoration of a world that can be free of suffering, free of all of the conflicts and the symptoms of unhappiness that fill the world at every level of 
individual and relational and family and social and political and planetary levels of dissonance and failure to be able to live in accord with the will of that power that underlies and pervades nature and the consciousness of each of us that alone is able to restore harmony and peace and love and joy to this world that is starving for lack of those gifts of grace. So this gathering, this event is referred to as a satsang. The word sat, of course, is very central to us here at the Sat Yoga Ashram. The word sat is a very well-known and ancient Sanskrit term that can be defined as the real. It's also been referred to as being, or the supreme being, or just simply what is behind what seems to be. And so if we simply use that term, the real, we can avoid having to refer to what some would say the real must be, whether it's God or the Buddha nature or uh, the Tao or Wuji or uh, Christ consciousness or Allah or any other term that the various religions use or even terms like a quantum unified field or the ether or uh, the uh, collective unconscious or superconscious or various other attempts to formulate that which would signify the ultimate reality which it is possible for us to know and from which our consciousness derives. But if we simply use the term the real or the self, then we can be able to understand it without uh, having to uh, deal with baggage of a religious or philosophical nature that can get in the way of the clear realization of that which is beyond all concepts. So sat is the real, and we could say that the real is to be distinguished from the apparent. And in ancient Indian philosophy that has continued to this day, the real would be defined as that which neither appears nor disappears, but is always present and unchanging, and which is what enables all appearance to be perceived. So the real is that which underlies appearance, but itself does never appear. And it's for this reason that there are difficulties 
in the ego mind's ability to grasp that which is real because it is ungraspable. It's not an object, it's not a thing, it's not an other, it's not a being in the world, but is that which enables the perception of a world and of beingness and of time and space and of all of the developments of consciousness that occur within that frame of reference to develop and evolve and eventually to realize the necessity of including the real within any paradigm of science that is to be complete. And so we have now finally in this postmodern period reached a point where the, the field of physics itself within the quantum paradigm has been forced to recognize that consciousness is elementary and fundamental to the nature of that which appears. And thus we are at a, a very important turning point in intellectual history in which that which was known by the ancient sages is being recognized by contemporary scientists as that ultimate element that has been lacking in our understanding and without which we cannot complete our comprehension of what is, of what becomes, of what appears and disappears, and of using the power of consciousness that neither appears nor disappears to reconfigure the trajectory of the evolution of the phenomenal world in the direction of that original perfection of consciousness that was lost in the descent into a partial form of consciousness that we know as the ego mind. And so Sat referring to that real, that supreme real, that cannot be known through thinking, cannot be known through some external experiment or uh, some focus on a, a piece of the physical world, whether that is the brain or it is any other phenomenal object, but can only be known by being that. This leads to the realization of the necessity if we are going to understand this ultimate real and integrate it with all that we know, that we must unlearn all that we think we know in order to be that which is unknown and yet is more real than everything we have thought. And this leads to the practice of meditation, of returning to the medi, the center of our being, the heart, the source, the self, 
the real and learning to abide as that so that that which had been hidden from our ego consciousness becomes revealed and realized and we attain a merger of consciousness with that supreme unified field and source which enables a completely new revolutionary and complete frame of reference. In fact, a frameless frame, an infinite realization of the boundlessness of what we are and the limitlessness of our potentiality. Once we have rejoined that 99% of the intelligence and the bliss and the truth of our being that was lost in the projection of consciousness into the physical body. And the ensuing ignorance of that 99.999% of consciousness that doesn't fit into the physical body is not part of a skin-encapsulated ego, but which nonetheless remains always who we are, and once reintegrated, enables us to function at a much, much higher level of integrity, of empowerment, of joy, of love, that alone can resolve the conflicts that seem unresolvable in a world of egos. So the word sat is that supreme real. The word sang or sangha means a gathering. So it is a gathering in order to be real. But what actually is gathered at the most obvious level Human beings gather. And we gather not just physically, but now we gather our consciousness upon a single teaching, a single presence, whether it's uh, in the direct phenomenal plane of the five senses or with the aid of a computer screen or with whatever other media may be involved. But it is actually a gathering that brings us to the immediate. In other words, the real satsanga is not the phenomenal gathering of people together, but the gathering of one's dispersed attention that had been focused on many external things, objects, events, past and future, uh, worries and uh, projects, and it is a choice to gather all of our attention in the present to know directly and immediately who we are by being that and that alone. And so, therefore, even if only one person is meditating upon the self, and gathering all his or her attention into that 
unified presence that is in stillness, in silence. In other words, without interference patterns created by mental activity, but is able to attend fully and completely to the source of awareness itself. Even if only one being is doing that, that is a satsang. And if many people gather but aren't doing that, we can't say it's really a satsang. And so my hope is that everyone who is listening to this is at the same time performing internally the tapas, which is the, the intention of moving the attention inward to the self that does not appear, but to which all else appears and focuses entirely on the self that is the silent stillness of pure presence, pure awareness without adjuncts, without projections, without identifications, without dispersal or interruptions, without shifting from silence into thinking, but remaining steady in that pure presence that is egoless. In other words, that level of pure awareness in which the thought or the notion or the feeling of I as an individual being thought about either explicitly or implicitly does not arise. And it must be recognized in order to accomplish this that the thought I is always only a representation of the meaning of I. To use uh, linguistics terminology, uh, especially that of the famous Ferdinand de Saussure, the one, the one of the fathers of modern linguistics, every word is, in a, any language is a signifier and it refers to a signified. But most of us have never asked, what does the signifier I, I if you're speaking English, yo if you're speaking Spanish, and ich if you're speaking German, etc. But what does that signifier actually signify? What is the signified of the word I or its equivalent in any other human language? And can I know that at a level that is not simply the addition of other signifiers or other images or other ideas in any form? 
can I know the real meaning of I in its purity before the arising of language as a program that is designed to know that which the I perceives and projects as its world, but is not designed to know the author of that projected world, is not able to know the source from which all of the mental projections that constitute what we think of as an external world derive from. And so the I is turning within to know itself, which is why the primary mantra that we began with is I am I. Not I am a body or I am a thinking or speaking entity or I am uh, anything that appears in the world, but I am that which is real to whom or to which, because you can no longer say the I is a person or is impersonal because we are now in that level of reality beyond concepts. But can I be the true real that is I and to know this I as I really am. This knowledge, this jnana, this self-realization is the meaning of satsang and is the essential core of every form of spirituality throughout the ages. It is that simple. It doesn't require, nor does it really entail or benefit from any religious practices, whether prayers or invocations or ceremonies or rituals or rites of passage of any sort that require bodily or mental activity because this realization of the self requires only the subsiding of all mental activity, the cessation of mental activity. And therefore it is not technically a karma. It's not an act you can perform most of the questions that people ask at a gathering like this is, how do I do it? What's the technique? What's the method? There cannot be a technique or a method or an approach because it is the subsiding of the desire that is based upon the belief that one is a doer that one is a body that must act in a certain way in order to know a certain something. Or that one is a mind that must get some kind of a symbolic grasp of some complex equation of uh, some 
very difficult form of consciousness that can only be known through uh, an active approach of uh, deconstructing some complex entity, whether it's a computer or the neurons of the brain or uh, some uh, formula of conscious uh, activity that produces a certain theoretical frame of reference. It's none of that. It's the pure, absolute simplicity of awareness that is prior to any of the developments of our mental capacities that lie within the derivative ego mind. What is discovered, according to the testimony of all the sages who have achieved self-realization and that one can discover if one does the experiment of abiding in inner silence and piercing through the core belief that, that is the I thought that produces the whole field of representation and if one can penetrate deeper within than the representational field or cloud of conceptualizations and enter into that intelligent presence prior to thought, then one knows directly and feels directly the truth of the unchanging self as pure intelligence, pure presence, and infinite happiness, infinite bliss that is completely unknowable and unbelievable to the ego mind that is always in a state of lack, dissatisfaction, and in a state very often of negativity, of attitude about itself, about the world, about other people, about what is possible, and which in its own evolution or devolutionary process tends to be indoctrinated more and more by the conditionings of a social system that today are extremely cynical, materialistic, atheistic, consumeristic, uh, dumbed down and uh, superficialized such that the consciousness has endemically uh, reached a point where it is in uh, attention deficit and in which it is in a pit of negativity and cynicism about itself and about its potentialities. And this psychological conditioning adds one further layer of obstacles to the realization of the self. 
But what's important to know is that the self, the pure awareness, is not a psychological entity. It is pre-psychological. And therefore, whatever psychological state of the ego mind, however pathological, however closed-minded, however closed-hearted, however narcissistic or however wounded and traumatized, whatever is the condition of the ego mind and its repetitive patterns of the production of signifiers that are charged with negative affects and emotions and often somatizations, projection of its own unhappiness into the body, producing uh, symptoms of illness, uh, physical as well as mental, and producing uh, burdens of unhappiness that then affect others and uh, burgeon into uh, levels of uh, misery that then uh, extend outward and affect whole uh, family systems and populations and societies that then become subjected to addictive processes that are the attempts of the ego to try to solve the problem through chemistry or through uh, activity such as uh, sexual promiscuity or attempts to flee from one's uh, misery uh, through activities like gambling or uh, addictive processes of uh, retail therapy, spending money, or being obsessed with making money or being obsessed with any of the other activities that are promoted as uh, healthful and uh, inherent to the capitalistic system and uh, to life as we know it in, in some normative fashion that accepts that this level of dissatisfaction and suffering is simply part of reality that we must adapt to and accept and can never get beyond. But, fortunately, that's not the case. And it is possible without the use of any substances or any techniques or any need to acquire any apparatus or to uh, even devote huge amounts of time or to change one's lifestyle in order to... Uh, move into some kind of externalized solitude <clears throat> to uh, reach and, and abide as the self that can be described as the manifestation of sat-chit-ananda, of the real intelligent presence that is always blissful. We don't need any of that, but what we do need is to let go of the illusion that we need something or someone or some different situation in order to transcend the ego. And so the, the teaching is about letting go, not about acquiring. 
And it is a very radical letting go that is being suggested, which is not simply a letting go of external uh, concerns, but letting go of thought itself, letting go of identification as a body, letting go of all that one believes or has been led to believe or conditioned to think we should believe. And it's in the letting go of all beliefs, including and especially the belief that I am a bodily being in a world and my only instrument for navigating through life is thinking and using thought to manipulate, to, uh, to weaponize, uh, to be able to defend and to claim and assert and uh, defend territories and uh, belief systems and intellectual positions and all of those things that have become reflex activities of the mind in which it is constantly supporting its own uh, signifiers of identification that give it a sense of loyalty to a family system and a social system and to memories that it holds from the past or to ideals that it was conditioned to believe in that would determine its trajectory through time, etc. If we can let go of all of that and return to the absolute simplicity of non-egoic presence, then we can make the most startling and wondrous discovery that it's possible to make which is that who and what we are is not trapped in time and space or in a body or in whatever situations the mind believes constitute its condition uh, or any of the uh, external forces that it believes it must cave into and be intimidated by and uh, submit to, but there, there is a radical freedom available to us here and now simply through the transcendence of all of those illusory thoughts that constitute the real essence of our bondage. And once we have dropped all of those and discovered them to be illusions, we realize a level of being that is so real, so powerful, so intense, so joyous, that once that is recognized as what we are, we would never return to the illusory ego and never fall from the grace that this realization constitutes. And so it is this 
that a satsang is about and what makes a gathering of souls of consciousnesses who seek this integration, this realization with the one consciousness that turns out to be the real self because the self consciousness in its pure form has no boundaries, has no limitations, is not a local phenomenon, but its non-locality means not only that at the quantum level every consciousness is entangled with every other, yes, that is true at a level of still duality, but even deeper within there is a realization there is only one consciousness that contains and pervades the entire universe. And that is what I am. That is what each of us is. Nothing separate, nothing different, nothing less than that consciousness that is cosmic in nature and transcosmic. And that is inherently always free, always filled with joy, with luminous, beautiful, perfect presence, unaffected by any events that happen within the perceivable world, but with the capability of changing that world through the realization that it is but a dream that arises within the consciousness of the self and that as the dreamer there is a sovereignty and a power and an authority, a birthright to bring the beauty of the self into the world And through that vibrational frequency that is consciousness in its perfection and its eternal, unlimited, luminous power to transform the dream we call the world in the most beautiful, loving, compassionate, peace-giving and unifying way. May we all realize that this blessing is available to us. Through the simple act of letting go of the false belief that we are something other than that supreme real. Namaste. So the floor is open to anyone in the room or in the computer who, uh, who wishes to ask a question that I can uh, help someone focus more on uh, penetrating through whatever obstacles uh, prevent or seem to prevent the realization of the self. Yes. 
Thank you, Shunya. First of all, we'd like to welcome everyone who's joining us via the internet and let you know that we've already received many questions on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. So we may not be able to get to all of your questions, but please feel free to leave them in the comments section below. If we can't get to them today, we may get to them in a future satsang, or they may be the topic of another teaching. Thank you. So, Shunya, the first question is on astrology. Uh, the question is, are we puppets of astrological influences? Meaning, do those influences govern the very potentials and possibilities we feel, feel within? Where the only option we have is to meditate or interpret and express or suppress, redirect structure, etc. Does that mean that what we refer to as free will is essentially extraordinarily constrained by the invisible laws, flows, patterns governing the cosmos? Hmm. No, that's not true. It's the opposite of that. And, uh, and most classical astrologers uh, realize that. The world is a projection of the consciousness of the self. And because of that, the universe has a fractal nature in which the code of that which is real can be read in many levels by those who are trained to read, to see. One of the places one can read that is in the patterns of uh, celestial objects, if one is trained to do that. But the reading and the interpretation actually is not gotten from the stars or even from empirical evidence. It is gotten from the psyche that has an internal knowing that it can project upon the various celestial houses that are conceived of as constellations with particular influences, etc. But that's actually a reflection of the power of consciousness itself. And even though uh, some prefer to read uh, and, and, uh, uh, and try to understand the, uh, the meaning and significance and, and future trajectory of the world through the stars, there are others who read it in the uh, lines of one's palm or one's fingerprints and who can discover the same information there. There are other psychics who can read it in the aura, in the, in the field of energy that surrounds the, the physical body. There are others who have many different ways of reading the symbolic nature of reality. Some do it by interpreting the dreams that we have at night. There are some cultures on islands in the various parts of the world that will do it by analyzing the chicken entrails of a sacrificed uh, chicken and will find the same information. There are uh, fortune tellers who will read it in tea leaves or coffee grounds. There are uh, those who can read it through scrying, they can look at, at one's own fingernail and see the future in it, or in a crystal ball. And so these forms of what are called divinization and uh, of, uh, of divining the future, of, of seeing, 
what is uh, imperceptible to the uh, gross level of consciousness uh, it can find that uh, it's present anywhere in the universe, but the reason it is, is that it's present within our own consciousness. And so it does not actually uh, limit our free will. It's an expression of the will that has itself predetermined a destiny that would enable the optimal events to happen in one's life that would bring about and trigger the desire to return to the self, to grow to that ultimate capacity of consciousness to know itself. And sometimes this requires the turning of a karmic screw of pain and suffering so that one realizes that you're not going to gain that ultimate wisdom through things that you do that will provide sensuous pleasures and, and, uh, and, and the various kinds of uh, financial and uh, political and uh, other uh, assorted carrots that uh, the world uh, offers to those who, who seek uh, enjoyment of power or prestige or wealth, etc. But that the real uh, important goal of life uh, has nothing to do with what we can acquire, but has to do with returning to that which is eternal within us. And so because that is the ultimate and highest use of our free will, those uh, conditions and situations that seem to constrain the free will at an ego level actually enable the real freedom of the transcendence of the ego to be chosen by our free will as the real and most important and overriding goal of life. And those who have awakened to that discover that there are no obstacles either externally or internally that can prevent the blissful realization of what we are and the complete empowerment that comes with that. Thank you so much. The next question is, what to do if you always felt a big disconnection and hatred towards your own body since childhood? How to deal with the daily pain and misery that comes with this condition? Mm. This is a very common condition, alas, today, because uh, the world has become a meat market. And the, uh, the sense of one's uh, popularity and one's prestige and one's ability to get approval and love from others is so dependent on how you look and what is your style of dress and what tattoos you have on your body and uh, all of the aspects of the bodily appearance that have to fit into a certain norm that is never achievable fully, so that there is always, by the postmodern ego, an obsessive concern with its weight, uh, with its size of various organs that have uh, various different meanings to uh, the, uh, uh, the promiscuous gaze of the other, and uh, which determine uh, its level of unhappiness because it can only imagine that the uh, desirability as a bodily object to the other 
is what is determinative of one's satisfaction. But this, of course, is an illusion that is always discovered to be the case, no matter how well-developed one becomes through working out at a gym or getting cosmetic surgery or doing whatever else uh, that bodies are willing to put themselves through including their own mutilation in order to uh, be found more attractive. None of it works. None of it brings about the happiness that is desired. And so we we have a, a population that is uh, destitute and devastated by their own uh, attacks upon themselves uh, on a mental level and often on a physicalized level, and their own attempt to live as bodies that require the, the approval of others and are always therefore comparing themselves with other bodies and finding that there's always someone who looks better and who has more of what the norm seems to require for uh, the uh, the big leagues of uh, supermodel kinds of uh, a physical presence that alone will will enable the uh, the ego to rest uh, on its laurels and no longer have to uh, to struggle and to starve itself or to uh, uh, to work out constantly in order to uh, be able to feel minimally good about itself. So this is an epidemic that is also used by the system to control people and to keep people uh, disempowered and uh, and so focused on the body that uh, they don't have any margin to worry about whatever freedoms they're losing at a political level or economic level, etc. And so uh, it's a way of distracting the population from other far more important issues than that of, of the body. So again, one, one realizes that the body that one has been given is a body that serves the purposes perfectly of the self that is actually the consciousness uh, that is given that body as its instrument and vehicle for self-realization. That simply through the act of accepting oneself as one is, as one appears as a body, and realizing one is not the body, one can begin to gain back that power that had been given up through the self-objectification and turn that those self-tormenting thoughts into the very curiosity of what am I as a consciousness that is, that is formless and bodiless and to discover the power, the creative intelligence and uh, the incredible capacity of love and of joy that is the real source of popularity and empowerment and success and joy in the world that will not be found through any bodily uh, attempt to uh, 
conform to some arbitrary norm of what, what bodies should appear as, this freedom from that mental trap will bring about a, a level of satisfaction and, uh, and joy that uh, nothing else will achieve. But there has to be a free will choice to accept what one has been given and recognize that it's a blessing, not a curse, and that uh, through um, opting out of the meat market and uh, the world of uh, comparative uh, body measuring will enable one to reach the full measure of our power as consciousness to live uh, in accord with a higher intelligence that will bring us the only real fulfillment that life offers. Thank you. I've got plenty more. <laughs> if anyone in the room has a, a question or a comment, please also feel free to ask. Go ahead. Is eating healthy prolonging the ego? What I mean by this is, is someone who is working towards shedding the ego or person identity still holding on to an identity by making sure they are cleaning the body out or keeping it clean by eating healthy. Is this a journey the ego has made up to prolong its existence? Also, does eating healthy even really matter? All is the self, correct? So wouldn't anything we eat essentially be Soylent Green? It's a good question. And the answer is, is not a yes or no, because it depends upon one's obsessive concern with health. If that's the case, uh, and, and one's uh, mental attentions are constantly focused on uh, making sure that one is eating according to some perfect uh, a combination of foods and that they all have to be organic and they have to be this or that and one can't be happy if one is forced to eat something that is not on this ideal diet and and one's world is constrained by these kinds of obsessive concerns then yes I would say it's unhealthy and it's uh, it's a matter of uh, of egoic prolongation of one's uh, misery but uh, since one can eat a junk food diet and be just as obsessed with eating bad foods, and often people are more obsessed than addicted to eating uh, foods that are not healthy uh, and, uh, and who don't even have uh, the, the recognition that they are destroying their health and their well-being and often their ability to think clearly and perhaps bringing on early uh, Alzheimer's or uh, coronary or other, other diseases that can uh, cut short life and the quality of life then uh, if it's simply a matter of uh, eating a healthy diet versus being obsessed with an unhealthy diet full of addictive foods, then clearly the healthy diet is the superior way to go and will give one a prolonged opportunity to transcend the ego if that's the reason that one is eating healthy. And so if one is, is eating a healthy diet in order to serve the world better and be a role model of a good health, 
and, uh, and to use one's good health in the service of the higher intelligence and capacity for love. And if one wants to uh, exemplify how one can live non-addicted to those kinds of foods that tend to be unhealthy but that one becomes overly attached to, if one can live without attachment to healthy food, but simply in the course of one's activity, there is a natural choosing of uh, healthy versus unhealthy food, then if the consciousness is actually not involved with that, but the consciousness is involved with who is this food feeding? It's feeding the source of one's being. And the physical food that one is eating is only one kind of food that's actually the least important. They're the food of what impressions we take in is far more important. If you're, if you're eating a very good uh, diet of physical nourishment, but you're watching junk food films or going to the internet to uh, uh, see porn sites or you're uh, participating in activities that are uh, not uh, appropriate for the upliftment of one's consciousness. If you're taking in impressions and giving impressions to others that are actually of a non-nourishing kind, that are, are uh, filling other people's minds with unhealthy ideas and uh, unhealthy uh, projections of one's consciousness, then uh, that's a much worse uh, kind of dietary uh, uh, confusion and uh, inaccuracy. And then at a higher level, even then the impressions of a, an external kind that one takes in or one uh, shares is the vibrational frequency that one is taking into one's mind directly through one's uh, one's, one's uh, attention or lack of attention to the source of one's being that will bring inspiration if one is connected, will bring insights and downloads that will uh, add to the, um, the, the, the beauty of one's life and that will enable one to act with a greater generosity of spirit toward others and toward the world and will uplift one's character and, uh, and one's uh, destiny so that one can live a life that is more noble and virtuous and, uh, and beautiful. And uh, one can be a model of ways to live, to use this bodily life that we are given, uh, not simply in order to, uh, to eat a certain kind of diet, but to eat in order to live a certain kind of life that enables us to share the uh, divine beauty of consciousness in ways that would otherwise not be possible to us. So that to me is uh, the, a more balanced way to approach the whole issue of diet in its, in its true multidimensional sense. Ah, yes. In order to better understand the nature of consciousness, can we um, relate consciousness to Ruhul Qudus or Holy Spirit, as we know it in religious terminology? And mm, the self-conscious 
consciousness could be uh, related to God consciousness or Christ consciousness. Is yes. that correct? Yes, that's correct. It's correct, but it's not necessary to put it in those terms. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can put it in non-theistic terms just as easily. So there are people who have an allergic reaction to the God word or ver varieties of that word uh, and who would perhaps not appreciate that terminology. And there are others for whom that will enable one to, uh, to use one's uh, spiritual or religious training to be understood in a different different way and therefore to more accurate, accurately uh, use uh, that metaphysical superstructure to reach what is really signified by the term Holy Spirit. So yes, I think if it works for you, then definitely make use of it. Our next question is, how does dignity differ from pride? This is a subjective question. If the ego is asking it, it probably doesn't differ. Uh, I, I think one would choose the word that might seem more complementary to oneself, but, uh, but one who is truly self-realized would have no concern for either dignity or pride. Uh, and, and, and because one is living in absolute simplicity, one has no interest in impressing the other, uh, nor in living according to norms of what is a dignified way of life. I mean, to many people, Sri Ramana walking around in a loincloth would not be dignified and might show a lack of pride. And, you know, and, and, but in fact, it, that renunciation of the need to have fancy clothes or a stylish uh, way of uh, appearing in the world uh, is a much higher a kind of purity of being that transcends anything that could be uh, reached through some attempt to uh, have a sense of pride or dignity, which is always at the personal and egoic level. Thank you so much, Shunya. The next uh, question starts, I would be grateful if you could dive, I'm sorry, if you could give deeper explanations why people get addicted to social media, apart from the common explanations such as to avoid loneliness. Well, I think that uh, people don't know who they are. Uh, people are not uh, taught to connect with their own inner feelings and uh, to understand what their own heart is calling them to do. So they want to connect with that which seems to represent uh, the majority, the, uh, the mainstream, uh, that which is uh, in alignment with uh, what will bring one greater popularity or success or uh, the right words to be able to connect uh, with other people and to uh, show one's picture online, whether it's Facebook or some other media, and uh, to be able to get illusory friends who uh, can, uh, in a very cheap way, click on, on something that gives one the sense of uh, being approved and being popular. All of these are very illusory and uh, 
delusional uh, forms of uh, social development that have brought about the loss of our ability to carry on deep conversations or to meet face to face without a computer interface uh, and to uh, actually develop kinds of relationships that are have largely been lost in this world of uh, of, of computer mediated uh, uh, relationality and that uh, have, have led to a, a great uh, impoverishment of the human condition, such that many people are no longer able to express themselves in poetic language, but can do little more than pop an emoticon on the screen and think that they are expressing something meaningful. Uh, and this is a, a very sad state of affairs for uh, the human heart. Yes. And my question is, how does a non-existent ego ask a question that doesn't exist? It does thinks it exists. Does this only happen within the illusion of the dream? Correct. So right. is this truly a satsang? That depends on your dream. If you are truly going deeper than the ego and awakening from its dream, then it is. And otherwise, it's not for you. Indeed. But each person would have to answer that for themselves, uh, whether they're willing to go beyond their definition as a person, which is an object that seems to appear in the world, and realize you are the non-appearing consciousness that uh, is uh, eternal and is much more real than the you that's appearing in this dream you call reality. In the same way that at night, if you have a dream, uh, in the midst of that dream, you will think it is reality. Uh, and, and it may be a scary reality or, or, or create some other, some stimulation or some kind of, uh, of euphoria. It can create all kinds of things that during the period of the dream will seem very, very real. And then the moment you wake up, oh, it was only a dream. It had no reality at all. Well, the same is true for this dream, but most people may not pop out of it until the death of the body. Others will uh, transcend it through uh, their uh, doing the spiritual kind of practice that will enable the subsiding of the mind and the awakening to what is real. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the unreality of this uh, dream we call the world is, is definite and clear and, uh, and, and is no different from the unreality of a dream you wake up from at night. And, and once that becomes clear, then uh, the urgency of waking up from this dream, rather than creating more karma that could produce more suffering in the dream, becomes uh, a very high priority. Question about evolution. About? Evolution. Uh -huh. Is evolving analogous to a ladder? The atheist thinking Matt Dillahunty says it is not. My idea is that evolving spiritually would not be similar to a ladder or hierarchy. However, it seems that in this world, reality is like a climb up. 
Yet universally everything is relative, therefore equal, and so perhaps Matt is correct. I don't know this person that the questioner is referring to. Uh, and usually when the term evolution is used, uh, it refers to a theoretical Darwinian or neo-Darwinian uh, belief system regarding the, the physical morphogenesis of bodily forms from simpler to more complex and uh, a theoretical uh, evolutionary development of the human from the primates and using the, the various... Uh, uh, elements of the fossil record, which have a number of missing uh, links uh, to try to believe uh, in a certain kind of, uh, of progress of consciousness that uh, it has its own uh, uh, descent or ascent from uh, a lower and more primitive state. However, what we can see in the world and the actual history of humanity is a devolutionary process and devil in both sense, uh, senses of the word that in fact we, we, we are in a more dumbed down state of consciousness today in which there is probably more pride to go back to that word about the technological achievements and uh, all of the gadgets that we are able to use and all of that which have actually caused our abilities to communicate and to, to grow intellectually and to, to have a much more profound symbolic grasp of reality to be dumbed down and superficialized and lost. So uh, there is indeed a process of, uh, of a, uh, a lack of the, uh, the kind of spark of inspiration that cultures used to give us in a, a higher phase of uh, creative renaissance that our exhausted uh, culture or lack of culture today uh, can no longer sponsor or uh, support, whether it's in theater or music or any of the arts, there's an exhausted condition that has been unfortunately made worse through commercialization and uh, through the, the lack of audiences uh, who have a taste that has been cultivated for those much more uh, nuanced uh, forms of artistry than would be uh, supported by a commercial theater or musical or other artistic establishment today. So we, we have a situation where in terms of cultural uh, devolution, we are indeed in a, a spiritual miasma. But now the question actually seems to be about one's own individual journey from ego to, let's say, the, uh, the self that is uh, trans-egoic and transcendent of the phenomenal reality, the self that is the real, that is non-appearing, that we've talked about. And it's not an either-or whether the realization of that self is a gradual process 
of intellectual development through some map, uh, whether it's the Kundalini map in the chakra system or it's some other system developed by some postmodern philosopher, let's say Ken Wilber or one of the other thinkers who postulates uh, a, uh, an approach that requires a graduated ladder-like uh, uh, differentiation from one level of consciousness to another. And if one believes that one needs a gradual approach, then one is going to project that and live out uh, that gradual achievement of uh, higher states. Uh, but if one recognizes that indeed all of this is relative and, and consciousness in the real is absolute and not relative, then it's possible that immediately, without having to go through intermediary levels, one can achieve uh, liberation from the relative, from the ego, from the various levels of limitation of, uh, of development of consciousness to the, uh, to the fullness of our uh, true nature. But it is also the case that that's very rare and that the interest in even doing something like that very often requires a very gradual development and appreciation for what higher consciousness really is that the ego is, is very often blind to or will have an imaginary version of that will uh, limit one to the frame of reference of the ego, but cause one to believe that one is much higher on the illusory ladder than one really is. So uh, all of this uh, requires a tremendous uh, truthfulness, a very nuanced capacity for discernment, and, uh, and a great uh, internal development of one's understanding of one's own consciousness and all of the mental and psychological formations that tend to arise and uh, dictate the flow of one's attention uh, prior to one's ability to fully uh, mobilize one's will for the transcendence of the psyche itself. So, but the question of whether any particular individual does that will depend on their use of their freedom of will and, uh, and their, uh, let's say, reverence and dedication and, uh, and capacity to sacrifice the ego in favor of uh, rebirth as the, the real being that we are. Yes. The next question is, is it possible for a person with schizoaffective disorder to control their thoughts? I don't think it's, uh, it's possible for any ego to control its thoughts. <laughs> and I don't believe in the diagnostic categories of psychiatry. I think psychiatry can't control its thoughts. <laughs> and creates more and more diagnostic categories uh, because it can't figure out really what's going on with anyone uh, nor resolve their problems through any form of treatment that they've developed. So I would throw out that signifier 
and, uh, and not let the belief that one has a schizoaffective condition uh, be some uh, impediment to stopping one from the realization of the self that is beyond thought. It's that realization that will stop the thoughts, nothing else. So the ego does not uh, reach the self. The ego uh, is a belief system that must be let go of in order for the self to be realized. But the self is always silent. The self is in a state of presence. The ego mind is living in the past or the future or in its own fantasies and uh, anxieties and therefore cannot be present. It's always in a state of vibrational um, self-ambivalence and ambiguity. But there is always the ability to recognize that one is the witness of one's psyche. Regardless of how pathological the thought patterns or, or the emotions or the obsessions are with uh, that are going on in the psyche, if one simply asks the question, but to whom is the psyche appearing? Who am I who is able to witness all of this that is not itself part of the mind or part of the body or affected by any diagnosis or any chemical condition or any of that? That consciousness that is able to witness the mind is also able to turn away from its concern with the mind and focus on its own source and realize that presence that is already transcendent, empowered, uh, luminous, and, uh, and free of any, uh, any conditioning or the power of any uh, thought form to, uh, to hold it back from its own complete liberation into its real nature. Oh, please, Vajra. Um, is Atma Vichara considered a meditation technique that has a process that you can explain to us? Nope. <laughs> no. Uh, Atma Vichara would, it, technically, the terms mean investigation of the self. The self can only be investigated when one is present to one's inherent self-awareness without focusing on anything but that self-awareness, all right? And by definition, any technique would be focusing on something else other than one's self-awareness. Mm -hmm whether it's a mantra or a breathing pranayama type technique or asanas or uh, any other uh, approach would require focusing on something other than one's atman, oneself. And so therefore, atma vichara has to be the letting go of all techniques, all processes, all methods, uh, all uh, sense of an ego having to do anything in order to reach anywhere or uh, any level. All of that is part of the illusion. So it's a waking up that uh, has uh, no uh, intermediary between being asleep and being awake. It's not gradual, it's instantaneous. So uh, the process, if you want to call it, uh, of uh, trying to gain the self uh, uh, and, and finding it's difficult, one can't do that, is actually the ego's unwillingness 
to let go of the desire to have something else to grasp onto and hold onto uh, because it doesn't want to die into the self. So it's the ego's illusory existence that is the obstacle. And therefore, the only way out of that is to stop believing in that illusory existence and recognize that it's only a thought and, and your distance from your own self-realization is, is the width of a thought. And a thought has no width. So it's simply the, the stopping of thought and the instantaneous realization of what I am when no thinking interferes with realization of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. The next questioner says, thank you for your consideration. I didn't make note of the title, but in one of your talks, Srinamurti, you specifically stated being a Christian ashram. In what sense? <laughs> Did you mean in the loose sense of it being a significant religion at its heart, as many others stated, started out, or a believer in Christian faith that Jesus is salvation and the way to truth? Many felt and feel he glorified himself by professing many things, like I am the way, the truth, and the life, and several others. Do you believe in all things Jesus said and believe he came to fulfill the Old Testament as the Messiah? Thank you and love to you. I don't recall saying this as a Christian uh, ashram, but if I did, I probably would in the next breath have said it's also a Buddhist ashram, it's a, it's a Muslim ashram, it's a Taoist ashram, <clears throat> that all of the various uh, religious traditions derive from a single source that is not a religion and has nothing to do with religion. Uh, and I don't believe that if there was a historical figure who corresponds to the name Jesus, which could not have been his actual name because that's a Latinization. If he existed, his name would have been at best Yeshua. That would be the closest. Uh, but there was no one named Jesus at that time, certainly not in Palestine. Uh, and most of the uh, so-called uh, texts that seem to quote him are, were written uh, 80 to 100 or more years after he was said to have lived. Uh, and so no one knows if he was a historic figure uh, or if he was a composite of a number of uh, perhaps liberated yogis. There are those who would say that the, the Gnostic Gospels that were rediscovered in the Nag Hammadi uh, treasure in, in uh, Egypt recently or in, in the 19, uh, I think in the 40s or 50s, uh, represent the earliest uh, Gospels. They were banned and, and uh, and burned by the Catholic Church. So we could, we could say that there are many forms of Christianity today, none of which existed or were part of any original teachings of uh, this being. Uh, if indeed he existed as anyone other than a fictional character who was meant symbolically to represent the uh, journey of consciousness uh, through uh, through its uh, its developmental ladder ladder uh, or or gradual stations of the cross or whatever 
other uh, ways that uh, that idea is developed in the various forms of Christianity. So uh, the approach to Christianity, I would say, is most true uh, to that of what uh, we could suppose were the original teachings would be the via negativa or mystical Christianity that would maintain that uh, nothing that we say about uh, God could be true, that God is not knowable by the mind, and it's only by entering into that silence beyond the mind itself and beyond any concept of God or concept of Christ or, or any other spiritual concept can the realization of that which those terms are actually pointing to uh, be, uh, be known directly. And this, I would say, is the position of many of the greatest uh, Christian mystics. It's the position of Meister Eckhart. It's the, uh, the position of uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite. It's the, uh, the position of, uh, of many, many uh, saints and sages of the early church and who became the, the fathers of the church, some of whom were later uh, uh, considered heretics and eliminated, uh, some of which uh, whose teachings were de-emphasized by one church, for example, the Catholic Church, but emphasized very greatly by, let's say, the Russian Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox or the Coptic Church. Uh, and so you have uh, schisms uh, within the, uh, the, let's say, the tree of Christianity that uh, now uh, cannot be... Uh, uh, talked about in any monolithic or unified way. But I would say that the power of Christianity to remain as such an important uh, vessel of uh, spiritual yearning for, uh, for the West and for the whole world uh, is not due simply to the fact that many people were converted at the point of a sword or by colonialist and uh, imperialist uh, efforts, but that there is a core of truthfulness that transcends the Christian dogma itself that leads to a yearning, which I would say is probably more encapsulated in the idea that God became man in order that man could realize uh, he is God, not to use the he in any gendered sense, but that it is our own uh, self-divinization or realization of the God self that is actually what, what is being pointed to by Christianity. And it's equally uh, pointed to uh, by every other religion uh, and is uh, what enables a religion to survive through time because that yearning doesn't come from a religion, it comes from the heart of everyone who has a, an inherent desire to know the happiness that only self-realization can bring. I think we're almost out of time. I won't say alas, but uh, is there anyone else uh, present locally who would like to ask any or make any comments? Okay. Is there a burning question you want to end with? Well, uh, maybe we could do one more. Is one that more it is. So this person says, hello, Shunya. I am grateful to have the opportunity to present this question to you. 
On the path to freedom, we fi are finding spaciousness and expansion in so many areas. Somehow, when it comes to relationship, including marriage, there is some resistance that comes into play. Can you explain how we can find spaciousness and freedom within relationship? Is this possible? It is possible, but it takes a, a high level of a commitment of both parties to such a relationship to, uh, to make uh, God realization the uh, purpose of that uh, relationship. Uh, the, the great poet Rainer Maria Rilke said that uh, the function of relationship of that kind was to be guardians of one another's solitude. And so it, it, if, if uh, a marriage is a true marriage of, uh, of consciousness manifesting uh, in, in two forms, uh, two bodies, uh, it, it is in order to reach that bodiless, formless level of union, which is what love really is, that can only be attained through the internal commitment to marriage with God, with the self, the self that transcends the illusion of two individuals together and the, the, the realization that this is a relation between two aspects. It could be between the male and the female divine archetypal uh, aspects of love and, uh, and, and power or of, uh, of uh, beauty and grace and truth, on the other hand, or of any other way of dividing these. But ultimately, each party really uh, is a, a representation of the whole of God consciousness. And once that wholeness is recognized as the true significance of a relationship in which God sees God, not as another, not as a separate being, but as a consciousness that knows itself as I am I in the form of apparent duality that is an actual realization of non-duality, then what occurs at that moment of realization is that all of the world is a marriage. All of the world is a, a wedding of consciousness to the source. And we are all one. And, uh, and that oneness then brings a bliss in which everyone is realized as a manifestation of God. Not only human forms, but the forms of all uh, beings who are, are manifestations of the beauty of nature and of the supernatural. All of these dimensions of, uh, of reality, subtle and gross, become a part of the ecosystem of God consciousness that transcends uh, any particular relationship between any two apparent beings. Okay. I want to thank everyone who, uh, who has uh, tuned in, whether you were able to ask a question or not. And I would ask you, Purusha, if you can write down the questions that you weren't able to ask and I will try to uh, answer them in, in teachings and, and that are coming up. 
and uh, and those who are members of, of our website, certainly you can uh, uh, ask questions there as well, and I will try to answer them. And, uh, and, and if there are teachings that we aren't able to put on YouTube, they will also appear there. So we will try to answer every question. And we will uh, continue to offer these if there's uh, a desire on the part of, of viewers to uh, have access to this kind of an event. And I appreciate the, the questions, the, uh, the seriousness that's behind them, and the, uh, the yearning for realization and for getting beyond the, the superficial aspects of egoic concern in order to achieve realization of the self. And uh, to me, this is the most important thing we can do uh, as a gift to the world and as a gift to our own uh, joy and happiness and the, enjoy, the, the joy we can give to others in relationship, in the family system, in society, and, uh, and, and create a morphogenetic field, to use Rupert Sheldrake's uh, term, that will be contagious and enable everyone, whether they think they are on the path or not, to realize the, the grace of the consciousness that is the self that extends and includes everyone automatically, regardless of what beliefs we might have at a superficial level of the ego mind, and which is leading to a planetary awakening now that we are very uh, fortunate to be part of, and uh, which, uh, because of the will of that uh, supreme intelligence, is, uh, is leading to awakenings uh, all over the earth and, and changing uh, the trajectory of history in accord with that greater power of uh, truth and beauty and love and supreme consciousness. And so I wish everyone the blessing of the realization of the self and uh, the ability to uh, transmit the power of truth and of uh, supreme love to everyone whom you meet and everyone you encounter via the internet. Mm -hmm. Namaste. Namaste.